Ahoy! It is your boy, and today is Sunday, February 4th. And I have to admit, I'm a little, well, I'm a little under the weather today. As sort of last night I was um, up watching a movie, actually we'll probably talk about it, I was re-watching Uncut Gems, uh, the Softy Brothers film with Adam Sandler, and I was starting to get a little bit of a headache, and I was a little surprised because I knew it was kind of like a, you know, like a hungry headache. And uh, I probably mentioned in a recent uh, entry here that I've been counting my calories recently. So it's not like I hadn't been eating enough. In fact, I had not eaten a lot in the morning and ate. uh, And then I exercised a little bit and I realized I hadn't really eaten a lot. And so I kind of definitely made up for it. And when I first started counting my calories, I was keeping myself to like 2000 calories a day. And while I was losing like a pound or two a week, um, I, I don't know. It felt like I, I, I just wanted to cut back a little bit more and just see what kind of effect that would have. So I actually don't know. We'll see. But I've been eating about uh, fifteen to 1,800 calories a day. And when I step on the scale later this evening, I'll be able to see if uh, what kind of impact that has had, if any. But um, as I was going to sleep last night, I had this headache. And um, as I, w- I sort of was waking up at intervals throughout the night, and the headache was still there. It was kind of surreal or kind of weird that you know, I was able to go to sleep, but wasn't keeping me from sleeping. But it was just a little bizarre to realize when I would wake up either to use the restroom or, or what for, for any reason, all of a sudden I would feel this headache return. And I was like, isn't it bizarre that I have this low hum of pain that I'm just not experiencing? It's just present and it's waiting for me for when my brain turns on. But it's just, it's, it was just, I don't know if you can picture what I'm thinking, which is where does the pain go when I go to sleep? You know, how is it living in my body so that when my brain turns on, it's there to be registered? But where does it, if you know, sort of like that if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? It's like, where is there just pain present in my body, even though the the sort of brain computer is not on to receive it? Is it just sort of tangibly there somehow? Anyway, I start to sound like a a stone college student, I suppose, when I sort of uh, start talking like that, but when I woke up, I was definitely, you know, that hungry headache was there and it was, uh, and, and, and also I slept a little bit late. I woke up at like eight o'clock, which is not, um, and man, talking about sleep makes me tired, but not that eight o'clock is late, but I was up for about two hours until about 10 and I just, uh, just felt really tired. And I was like, man, maybe I'm kind of coming down with something. So I closed my eyes for a little bit. I just sort of laid on my sofa and I ended up sleeping for like an hour and a half was, uh, you know, just very bizarre. But uh, anyway, woke up, had some breakfast. I've been piddling around most of the day. Um, but yeah, a confluence of things. I, I don't know if I have a bug. We'll see. Um, uh, you know, but uh, I also admit, and I think I said as much the last time we connected, but, and I'm sorry, I'm yawning. I don't know where this is coming from. I know that's been... um. Yeah, that's been a thing in the last couple installments here. Um, so, yeah, who knows what's going on? I, I think uh, something I'm also feeling is the weather's been real shitty. I've talked about my sort of seasonal effective stuff. And so I think it's the weather. I think it's not having a lot to do uh, now that everything's kind of taken care of and I'm pretty much all set to take my trip to Taiwan. Um, and also I did, um, I put in my uh, grad school application um, earlier this week. So really with all that stuff behind me, I really don't have a lot to do before I take off. So I think it's, you know, they say the devil makes work for idle hands. So I think it's bad weather. I think it's not having a lot to do. And, uh, so I'm really just kind of stewing in my juices and, uh, you know, if there's a time to get sick, now is the time to do it. Because the last thing I would want is to like catch COVID like two days before I leave. So I'd rather get sick while I still have a couple of weeks and uh, and sort of deal with it. Well, I don't have a lot going on where it's not going to impact my plans. So yeah, I feel like maybe I was driving at another point that I lost track of. But yeah, feeling a little bit under the weather and... um but overall, there's not a lot to complain about. I've uh, been watching a lot of movies. I know we've, I feel like we've talked about that a great deal. And, uh, you know, 
Not that I want this uh, personal journal to turn into uh, just film criticism or whatever. But I think especially when I don't have a lot to do, that's one of the ways I like to spend my time. I watched um, this show on um, Amazon Paramount+. Plus. I had to sort of get the seven-day free trial and uh, make sure I canceled. Uh, but uh, it just afforded me the opportunity to watch this show. But it's called The Curse. And uh, I mentioned Uncut Gems, which is directed by the Softy Brothers. Uh, but the only reason I was re-watching that film was because I had watched this show, The Curse, which was co-created and written by Nathan Fielder, I think is how you say his name. But he is uh, the main person in that show, uh, I think it was Comedy Central, called Nathan For You. And I had seen like an episode of it and thought it was really smart and really intelligent and pretty funny. So I don't know why I didn't follow up with it except for... I don't know, it's a cable television show and I don't have cable and uh, maybe there was just, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, although I saw it and thought it was very good, I just never really followed up with it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm yawning at you. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had heard this kind of show kind of floating around uh, in the background, or I had known of it rather, and uh, I was especially intrigued because one of the Softy brothers was involved. And uh, Ben Softy, I think it's Josh and Ben Softy are the brothers. But um, although Josh and Ben have done all the you know the the, the films together, which are uh, Good Time and Uncut Gems, and I have to believe they probably have a new movie coming out here pretty soon. Um, ben Softy is the one who has kind of been more public facing, meaning he sort of is the co-star of their first film, Uncut Gem or um, uh, Good Time with Robert Pattinson. And he also had an appearance in Oppenheimer. And the fact that he's kind of branched out and done this show with Nathan Fielder called The Curse um, suggests to me that, almost like the Coen brothers, I think Joel Cohen is the one who kind of uh, has branched out and done more stuff, even uh, done Macbeth, uh, their own film. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see the work that they do. And and The Curse is very cool because it, it is kind of cut from the same cloth as the movie's Good Time and uh, Uncut Gems, which is, although <clears throat> I don't know if Uncut Gems was shot on film, I know Good Time was shot on film, but they both are shot with this like really high kind of granular, I don't know if it's ISO or how they accomplish it, but there's just a very distinct look to the movies. And the score that they use is, I, I'm sure they have the sort of same collaborator, but it's a very synth-heavy uh uh, kind of film. And although we've kind of been in an era for the last decade that's kind of been, you know, romanticizing the 80s, uh, you know, with shows like Stranger Things and all that sort of stuff. So we've had a lot of kind of, I don't even want to say a tourist stuff, but it's this kind of hyper stylized sort of 80s tribute, uh, film grain, VHS, romanticization, um, uh, and a lot of like synth music and that sort of stuff. Um, it's one of those things where you're watching a film like Good Time or Uncut Gems, and although you may see similar things, you just kind of believe it when the Softy Brothers do it. It actually feels inspired. And uh, The Curse is one of these shows where it's I, I, I absolutely recommend it, but it's a bit like Uncut Gems, which is I remember when that movie came out and it was on my radar and I was interested and I think my brother had seen it, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he said it was good, but it was probably the most uncomfortable movie that he's ever watched. He just, and it's sort of hard to describe unless you've seen that movie. But when you do watch it, you just realize, and this is very purpose, it's purposefully done this way, but everybody just yells and screams and talks over each other, uh, talks over each other the entire time. And so clearly in the direction and in the writing and in the capture and in the editing, there must have just been this like creative choice that every moment of dialogue, for the most part, is going to be embedded in the kind of chaotic, manic energy of everything that's going on in this guy's life. And so um, it's just, you know, you watch it and every single moment is like cringe and hard to watch. So it's like Uncut Gems, the premise is, you know, Adam Sandler plays this, um, I guess you call him a jeweler in New York City, and he's also a gambling addict, and he's just kind of a de degenerate person. 
and he just keeps digging himself into a deeper and deeper hole. And we've seen movies like this in the past, where there's like um, an addicted gambler who, you know, the entire film is sort of, the, the, the drama of the movie sort of rests on watching this person just dig themselves into a deeper and deeper hole. And every time they have an opportunity to correct things, you're just dismayed to watch them make exactly the wrong choice and continue to risk it all until they either come out a winner or, uh, you know, disaster strikes or whatever whatever happens in these types of movies. Um, For some reason, I'm thinking of a movie that I don't think a lot of people saw. Uh, I've sort of been crucifying, or at least in, in a recent installment here, I was talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman's particularly bad turn in The Master. Uh, but you know, uh, I, you don't need to convince me that he's a great actor. I just think that's a exception. That's an exceptional, exceptional film in his output, and that I think he's, um, yeah. There's there's something. Uh, there's a disturbance in the force of his acting in that movie, and an otherwise a very very good career. Um, that's why I make note of it. But he did a movie too that I don't think a lot of people have seen, which is called Owning Mahoney, which is a true story about a Canadian banker. Um, who basically created fake accounts and like took out loans and, and these fake names and would fly to, I think, Atlantic City and, uh, uh, yeah, just win and lose tons of money, end up racking up, you know, millions in debt uh, in these fake accounts. And, of course, like the FBI comes out for him. But it's one of those movies where the, the, tension, the tension just keeps ratcheting up and up and you just see this person on a collision course. And it's one of these things where it's like, I feel this way when I look at people like Trump or other politicians or even actors, which is they seem to live in impossible circumstances of pressure. And you just think, how can anybody live that way? You know, like I'm the type of person where it's like, uh, you know, I feel very accountable to other people and what other people think about me means a great deal. And uh, that sounds all well and good, but what that actually means is that even in my private moments, I'm constantly like uh, observing myself and letting uh, the 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 amount that I care about other the amount I care about what other people think about me determine a lot of my actions. And if I ever get the sense that like I could be in trouble or I could be doing something that sort of brings judgment of other people, it it is it is a huge deterrent in my life. And maybe that's just maybe that's a good thing. But what I'm saying is you see people like Trump who just kind of like live this, their whole life is just kind of this fabrication, this sort of sleight of hand. And when it comes to life and uh, comes to light and they're on trial for their life and basically their entire reputation is at stake, they just don't seem to care. They're, they're able to kind of operate, um, you know, not only fight for themselves, but sort of dig their heels in even deeper and it's just like there's there's a component to that that I just don't understand, you know? It's like, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. For me, the idea that I have some sort of skeleton in my closet would just be like uh, undoing for me, you know? It's like you have people who like cheat on their partners or carry on these affairs. And it's just like, for me, I, you know, um, we all, I don't know. I, I've never cheated on a partner in the past, but it's like, that would just be like, uh, I just don't know how I would operate while that was happening in my life. I would just be so wrapped with guilt and so scared of somebody finding out that, uh, you know, yeah, it would. I just I wouldn't be able to function. And uh, so it's like when I watch these movies like Uncut Gems or Owning Mahoney and you have this person who's just like a degenerate gambler and everybody in their life, every single person they come into contact with is just thinking, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? This guy is just hell-bent on a course of self-destruction. It's just, uh, it all, it, it's obviously very compelling filmmaking, but it's just, uh, you know, cringe is not even the word for it. It's just deeply unsettling. And so you watch a movie like Uncut Gems, and if you're just looking for a flight of fancy, a good entertaining flick, it's not for you. It's, it's, it's literally an assault on the senses. I mean, visually, it's cut in such a way that things are just sort of stepping on top of each other. Audio-wise, it's just dialogue on top of dialogue. And, uh, you know, it's just one cringe, tense, uh, increasingly uncomfortable and disappointing and fraught moment from the beginning to the end. There's like, there's no moment of levity. And, uh, 
you know, that's either something you're up for or you're not. Now, why do I lean into that so much? Now, that's just a circuitous way to get back to what I was talking about, which is this television show, The Curse, which stars Nathan Fielder. He was the co-creator of it. And uh, Ben Softy also has a lead role in it. But the main leads are Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone. And Emma Stone is carving out quite a career for herself. And uh, it's kind of now, actually, now that I mention all this, I wonder if I did maybe mention that I was watching this show. I can't quite rem quite remember. Because I do remember saying Emma Stone is interesting because when I think about actors like Paul Dano or people who have gone on to have these sort of lauded careers, even to my confusion sometimes, like in the case of Paul Dano, but Emma Stone also has had a wonderful career, which is very crazy when you think, or very surprising when you consider that the first role that she stepped out in was as Jonah Hill's kind of love interest in Superbad, which came out who knows how many years ago. But Emma Stone's really in kind of a, you know, a highlight of her career. I know she was nominated for uh, Poor Things, which is the Yorgos Lanthimos, I think that's how you say his name, uh, the newest film, which I'm sure will be great. I'm just waiting for it to come out on streaming. But he's like one of the most exciting filmmakers of, you know, the last like decade or so. Um, his movie, The Favorite, is one of my favorite movies of recent memory. So, But Emma Stone's doing really well, and she co-stars in this. So it's Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone, and they play this couple who ha is developing a show for HGTV, and Benny Softie is the uh, director of that show, and he's a sort of longtime friend of Nathan Fielder's character. And he's just he's kind of a scumbag kind of guy. He's like the perfect producer and director for reality TV, which is he has no qualms about staging scenes and, uh, and making these sort of calculated choices to pit these reality, you know, his, his sensibly his friends, but these stars of this reality TV show in situations where, you know, they look bad or pitting them against each other so that there's drama on camera. Um, and that's, this, you know, some of the tension in the in the show comes from that. But the real tension is, uh, you know, it's, it's like Uncut Gems in which it's just cringe after cringe. But unlike Uncut Gems where you have this character, Adam Sandler's character, who's just completely um, let themselves go to depravity and sort of reckless self-destruction, it's interesting that when you watch The Curse, there's the same amount of cringe and uncomfortability, uncomfortableness, uncomfortable whatever, in every moment of the show but in, it's, it rests on two characters who are entirely invested in what I'm talking about, which is how people think about them. They're entirely invested in being seen as a, like these white saviors of this sort of underprivileged community, and everything they say and do is this kind of virtue signally, uh, you know, we want to give back to the community, and but they're, you know, they're vapid, they're, uh, they really have no moral compass. They're these kind of empty, uh, you know, sycophantic isn't the word, but, you know, their entire identity is sort of predicated on other people thinking that they're good people. And it just puts them in these situations where they just, um, they have no shame and they just embarrass themselves. And, you know, it's like watching all of the kind of social pressure that we all feel, and whether it's the sort of social identity or woke politics or whatever that's going on in the zeitgeist, sort of uh, distilled it down to two individuals and just watching two people trying to navigate that and, uh, you know, trying to navigate their self-interest versus, versus, you know, how they're being perceived by the community. And uh, it's kind of interesting because... I actually read a quote uh, from Christopher Nolan. When I when I finished watching the show, I was just kind of looking online, getting more information about it, trying to see how other people received it because I was really blown away by it. And it's um, I read this quote from Christopher Nolan who was saying that it was great. And he, ma he, said, he made a statement that I semi-agreed with, but I kind of disagreed with where he said, the thing that's incredible about it is that it really has no precedence in television history. It's like, a, what's the word? A, sui generis is that the word like it's just unto itself there's really nothing like it and it seems kind of inspired kind of comes out of nowhere um and there is that feeling to it which is when you really think about the dynamics of it and how it's shot which is also this really high iso like in a world of like 4k and uh hyper hd it is a little jarring to see this show that like it's just very grainy and it it almost looks digital 
although it, it almost looks like it was shot on film too. But it just it uses like these kind of like sort of antiquated, um, maybe even anachronistic is the word. These kind of zoom, these long, these sort of distant zooming shots, and um, and yeah, and you just really haven't seen anything like it. It feels like something completely different. But the thing, the show that I kept thinking about actually was Twin Peaks. And not because there is anything kind of thematically related. I mean, Twin Peaks is kind of, you know, it's this sort of murder mystery. But even The Curse, which is, you know, just about a couple who's uh, developing this reality show for HGTV, it's shot like a horror film. And it has that kind of pot boiler slash, you know, Blue Velvet is another David Lynch project that's coming to mind. But it's shot like a mystery, almost like a crime thriller type of thing. And, um, you know, maybe some of that is due to, you know, there is an ominous quality to the characters in the television show. But the reason I really thought of Twin Peaks, and I'm not going to tell you why exactly, but I think there's like 10 episodes in The Curse. And you're kind of watching this regular show. And then in the very last episode, it does this complete mindfuck where it does a complete shift in, I don't know if you want to call it aesthetics or even metaphysics. But it's like if you've seen Twin Peaks, um, you know, I don't know, spoiler alert, it's like a 30-year-old television show. But you're watching the show and then all of a sudden the very last episode of Twin Peaks is this insanely bizarre, totally Lynchian uh, ending that becomes like supernatural and all of a sudden there's a guy who's like talking backwards and, and all that sort of weird shit. And you look at it now and you think, I cannot believe that this aired on television when it did. I mean, I think that show was in the like late 80s or something like that. And you just think, you know, if you've seen David Lynch movies, you know what they are. You know, just think of movies like, like Blue Velvet, um, you know, with the gas mask where he's just sort of breathing into it. And uh, um, or uh, Lost Highway or uh, uh, Mulholland Drive or even like... Uh, yeah, I don't need to keep rattling off David Lynch films. If you've seen them, you know. They're these kind of dream logic type movies that have some of the craziest scenes in them that you've ever seen. And they, they're they almost non, you know, they're unintelligible sometimes. They have a kind of internal dream logic to them, but they're not, they're not coherent to the average uh, moviegoer. You know what I mean? And uh, so it's bizarre to be watching this show like Twin Peaks, which is a, you know, it has a kind of Lynchian sort of flavor to it throughout the entire, I think there's two seasons of the original, uh, of the original series, but the final episode is just fucking insane. And you think, what must people watching television have thought about this when this aired in the late eighties? It, it, most people had never seen anything like it. And what did they think of the conclusion of this? You know, they, they're invested in trying to find out who killed this woman. What do they think of this crazy ending to this television show? And I'm not saying that, you know, that there, no television show in history is going to be able to have that kind of impact because we're just living in an entirely different world. But The Curse has something like that where you're just watching it and all of a sudden there's this last episode where you're either going to be in or you're going to be out and think, what the fuck just happened? But it just has this twist. And I thought, how cool is it that somebody's still willing to make television like this where they do a show and not it, it. what I will say for it is it's one of the only, I mean, probably since Twin Peaks, I'm hard-pressed to think of another one, but it's the only piece of like truly auteurist television that I can think of. And um, it's just very cool that, um, you know, one that I think, uh, I guess it was, Sh I think Showtime, um, uh, what do you say, produce the show or something like that? It was produced for Showtime. But it's very cool that that um, there was a network somewhere that was willing to kind of go in on this television show. And I would be very surprised if they thought that a lot of people would be watching it. It really feels like a passion project, and it feels inspired. And, um, you know, it just covers a lot of ground in 10 episodes, and it makes, you know, some... It's just one of these things that if you watch it, I'm not, I can't say that you're going to love it, but I will say that it will have an impact on you. And I, I guarantee you, like Twin Peaks, it's something that you're just never going to forget. It's going to be an experience and you'll just, you know, you'll just go through the rest of your life and maybe a couple times a year, you'll just think about it and kind of chew over it and think, God, what the fuck was that show about? And, uh, so, and you know, as someone who watches a lot of movies and stuff, it's just, that's really the experience that I crave. Like as much as I want to be entertained and all that sort of stuff. I think at the end of the day, I think what we all really want is to see something new. And we want to feel like 
you know, we're in the hands of somebody. Like, it's actually kind of interesting now that I'm thinking through this, which is like, you know, the, cur uh, the curse, the show itself is focused on these people who are just entirely invested in going all in and bringing to light this television show that is just a piece of crap. It's just a carbon copy, you know, home developing reality show for TV. And in a way, that's like the tra that's one of the tragedies that they're experiencing, which is, is they're kind of going all in on creating something that even they know is kind of a piece of shit. And so it's kind of interesting that that is the subject of a show itself, which is actually trying to do something completely different, which is make a television show for, you know, a station like Showtime that is completely original. And um, yeah, so it's just, it's, you know, it has a kind of meta, meta commentary layer to it now that I think about it, which is, you know, one of the creative points of the film is, uh, you know, you could almost say that one of the themes of, of, uh, of the show is like creative courage and creative integrity in that way. And really, you know, the things that kind of undoes the characters in the end is that they're not, oh man, this is deep. Yeah, they're really not willing to be themselves. You know, Nathan Fielder's character is probably one of the most tragic characters that I can think of in like television history. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's this insane kind of jarring conceit which is that he has a small penis. And they establish this by showing it to you, which is uh, insane when it happens. But it's like, I can't think of another television show that not only discusses this, but foregrounds this element that a one of the major sort of psychological hangups of this character is that they have a micro penis. And I just thought, oh, that's so interesting and so inspired. But that premise radiates through every aspect of his character. He's completely beholden to Emma Stone's character, does what does everything that she says, is all in on making her happy and completely subjugating himself to what other people want him to be. And he has just no, you know, guts or identity of his own. And, uh, you know, just a, yeah, very tragic character. And, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I'll continue to think about that show. And uh, I think that's, you know, if I had one recommendation for you, it would be to watch that. That's the one takeaway. But uh, after watching that show, I did go back and watch Good Time, which is the first film that the Softie Brothers made. And uh, I had seen it, you know, once or twice before, but I, I'm pretty sure I hadn't seen it until after I saw Uncut Gems. And I think actually I didn't even know that it was the same filmmakers. I believe what happened is I saw Uncut Gems in theaters with my last partner. And I think, you know, probably within a couple of weeks or something, I was just looking for something to watch on Netflix. And I watched Good Time. And I was watching it and I was just blown away by it. And I don't think it was until after the movie ended that I was looking up information online that I realized it was the same filmmakers, but it made perfect sense. But I think the thing that I found pleasing about that is, um, I, well, this is going to sound like I'm taking a left turn, but I'm, I'm halfway on my desktop in another window. Uh, I'm halfway through rewatching Train to Busan, which is an incredible Korean horror movie that I saw uh, about the time it came out, probably when it first came to streaming. I think it came out, Jesus, man, that movie could have come out in like 2000. 16 or 17. It came out quite a while ago, and I've seen it a few times. Um, it's actually one of the only movies that I, I saw one day, and I was so... it's actually, well, First of all, it may be the only horror movie that I've cried at. I admit I shed a couple of tears at the ending of that movie. But I remember the next day telling my girlfriend, I was like, I watched this horror movie that... Uh, and she hated horror movies. But I was like, we... I, I really want you to watch it. If we can start watching it, if you don't like it, we can turn it off. But I watched it one day, and then the next day I watched it with her, and I admit I got a little choked up at the ending again. But when I watched that movie, I think like this is a, I think it's an incredible movie. I think it's shot incredibly well. I think the story is brilliant. And I think the thing that it does especially well is it's insane. You know, we live in a time where there's just no shortage of like zombie horror films. And, you know, there's been, and actually they're both Korean now that I think about it. But two examples that come to mind are Kingdom, which was a sort of short, uh, maybe six, eight episode series on Netflix, and Train to Busan, both Korean, are, are actually great examples of things that you should, it, it should be awful. You you should know all the beats that it's going to hit, and yet it does do a great job of, of creating like really compelling, really gripping kind of a zombie horror movie. But Train to Busan is one of those. But as I was sort of starting to watch it again today, 
I sort of clicked over and wanted to see what else the filmmaker had done. And I admit I didn't do really any deep, um, any deep uh, dive on it. So I don't who know. For all I know, they have made other great films. But the thing that stood out to me that was surprising is that since making Train to Busan, the, the director has done both an animated prequel and a semi-sequel, which is not really a continuation of the story of Train to Busan, but apparently exists in the same universe. Now, I haven't seen either of these, but the fact that I haven't seen them, the fact that they haven't come to light suggests to me that um, they may not be that great. Uh, we'll see. Maybe after watching Train to Busan, I'll, I'll dig those up and see if I... Um, can find those. But what I'm trying to say is Train to Busan then, in hindsight, seems like a bit of an anomaly. Uh, meaning, you know, maybe everybody has one good film in them or something like that. But it's very telling to me, you know, having seen Good Time, having seen Uncut Gems, and having seen The Curse, that the Safdie brothers are the real fucking deal. Meaning I saw Uncut Gems and was like, wow, that was a completely unique, very compelling, very interesting film. And, you know, what felt like happenstance, I saw Good Time a couple weeks later and I was like, wow, this is an incredible movie. I mean, I remember from the get-go just watching that film and not knowing that Benny Softy, who plays the handicapped brother in Good Time, was the filmmaker. I thought they had actually gotten like a handicapped person to play that role. But just from the beginning of that movie being like, wow, this actor is so compelling and Robert Pattinson's character, who's this complete sociopath, just portrayed so well, and the dynamic between them is so good. And um, and it also did this thing that I loved, which is I think like the credits don't roll in that movie until like 20 minutes into the movie, which I just thought was so... I remember seeing that for the first time and just thinking it was so brilliant. And then the closing credits of that movie are also just very, very touching. And I remember just thinking like, wow, this is exactly the type of movie-going experience I just I crave. And then turning to Google and realizing it was the same filmmakers, that's when you realize, oh shit, we have a real talent has arrived on the scene. So yeah, I don't know if the Softie Brothers have another movie coming out, but um, um, yeah, when I think about filmmakers, those are the people I'm probably the most excited about. And I know we've talked a lot of, uh, lately about like um, Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan and in a way, those movies are bigger. And, you know, one, one, it's just by virtue of time. I mean, I've literally lived my life alongside Quentin Tarantino. And in some ways, Christopher Nolan, too, I suppose. Even though those movies are bigger, there's something about the Softie Brothers, too, which feels a little bit closer to my heart. And I think it's because they do this thing, which it, it's no surprise that they're very influential on an, on an entire generation of filmmakers, because there's something about their aesthetic, like when you see the kind of grainy, high ISO, something where, you know, if you had told people, oh, this was shot on an iPhone, they might believe you. You know, I think it's Sean Baker is the other filmmaker who did The Florida Project and Tangerine, who's also one of my favorite filmmakers of, of recent memory, who I, every, yeah, and I, I think he also did Red Rocket, which is also pretty good. But they're the type of filmmaker that make you feel like you can do it yourself. You know, so you watch a film like Good Time or Uncut Gems and you feel like it's a small enough story. It takes place in few enough locations that if I had the courage or the wherewithal or the, or the inspired enough idea that I would be able to create something like this. Now, what you don't know probably is, you know, when you watch movies like Good Time or Uncut Gems, even though they look like they're shot on, you know, handheld digital video, these are shot on incredibly expensive film cameras with incredibly expensive lenses. And, uh, you know, what you're seeing is a sort of stylistic choice. But it's not the type of thing you can just pick, pick up an iPhone and shoot, even though it might feel that way. But what I'm saying is, is for creative people who watch that stuff, you know, it has an aesthetic sensibility that sort of indicates to people that uh, it, it's like a good magic trick or figure skating, which is it looks, they make it look easy. You know, and that's not, like, you can't watch Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan, which I did rewatch recently, which, you know, we were, I've been talking a lot about Christopher Nolan, and uh, uh, I've been trying to think, like, although movies like The Prestige are, like, very psychologically penetrating for me, and uh, I think Inception is one of the best blockbuster movies ever made, and Tenet has one of the most brilliant premises of any movie I've ever seen, although it has a couple of its own flaws, and Interstellar, despite a lot of its problems, has one of the most cathartic moments in movie history that I can think of. Um, where was I going with this? Uh, <laughs> I was talking about Christopher, oh, Dunkirk. This is where I was going. I rewatched Dunkirk recently and I thought, you know, this may be the greatest war movie ever made. 
and um, we, we, we spent some time in a recent um, uh, installment here talking about All Quiet on the Western Front, but Dunkirk may be the greatest war movie ever made. Um, but nobody watching that movie thinks, oh, I could do that. It's, it's abundantly clear that it takes huge production value and, uh, you know, an, an artist at the top of their craft to pull off something like that. But there is something about the Softie brothers where I guarantee you there's an entire uh, generation of filmmakers who feel like, oh, that's who I should be or that's who I should have been. And, uh, yeah. And yet, I think the point I'm really trying to drive home is, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, the planets aligning or someone making one good film. It's just interesting to watch something like Uncut Gems and think, oh, wow, this is a serious film. And then, you know, just happen to watch Good Time and also think, oh, these guys are doing it over and over again. And then, lo and behold, the curse comes out and you realize, god damn, this is, uh, you know, these guys are really setting themselves up to have a career that, um, you know, makes them one of the greats. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know what to say. I'm eager to see what they uh, what they continue to do. Yeah. Otherwise, um, I think the only thing that's really been at the front of my mind is thinking about how I'm going to continue doing this while I'm in Taiwan. And I think I have the solution. I, I sort of mentioned that I had stumbled on this YouTube channel of this, uh, the channel is called Small Brained American. And if that sounds familiar to you, I was sort of taught, my, my brother sort of mentioned hearing me talk about that and said, oh yeah, that guy's being pushed out to a lot of people, which was kind of my sense because his most recent videos had tons of views and I really enjoyed them. I had since gone back and sort of watched a lot of his older videos, which don't have as many views. And so I realized, you know, the algorithm on some level was kind of this guy was having his big break or something like that. But he does these really cool just handheld GoPro-style videos where he's just sort of going about his travels. And he's, he's traveled all over the world. And it's this very kind of non-assuming, non-ostentatious kind of uh, vlogging style. And I thought, you know, I have no interest in being like a YouTuber in that sense, but I just thought as a creative kind of documentation type of thing, this is something I could do. And so I thought, well, yeah, maybe I can look into buying like an action or a GoPro or I don't know what this uh, vlogger does, but it, it looks like he might be using something like a GoPro. But I was like, I could some kind of handheld camera. I was like, oh, that's that's something that I could do. Um, of course, I have to overcome my self-consciousness um, because I know it's very easy for me to sit here and say, oh, well, uh, yeah, I'm just going to buy a GoPro and I'm going to vlog as I walk around the streets of Taipei. It's another thing entirely to actually do it. And uh you know, do you really want to be that guy walking around the streets or into restaurants and like filming yourself? You know, I admit uh, that is very scary to me. And yet I'm also thinking that that might be kind of the exercise, right? Like even sitting here for a week and just sort of talking into a microphone for an hour about fucking bullshit. Um, you know, if no one ever had to hear it, that's totally fine. But the idea that I do this every week and no matter how good it goes or how poorly it goes, that it just gets pushed out. You know, the uh, the execution, the the commitment to the process, that is the kind of creative exercise. I admit there's something, I, I do feel like that would be a meaningful way to spend some time in Taiwan, which is just tolerate having a camera, walking around, shooting the stuff you want to do. And even if you look like, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Like a techno, uh, techno, idiot or something like that i mean at least when i travel i admit i i see the people with like the cell phones on the selfie sticks and they're uh, especially in places like taiwan there's a lot of locals who like they travel around or japanese tourists come to taiwan and they have the selfie sticks it looks like uh you know especially for an american i'd be like a you know a stupid uh stupid american walking around with his sort of uh first world tech looking like a dumbass but you know Actually, I was thinking about this, and there's a scene in Good Time where Robert Pattinson and Benny Softy are, like, running from the cops. And I know sometimes these things are, you know, they may look like they're sort of, uh, uh, how, do, how do you say it? Um, well, basically, the scene itself looks like the people, they're running through this mall, and people are looking at them like, what the fuck's going on? And so, although sometimes and many times filmmakers have to pull permits and all that sort of stuff... A lot of times you're watching a movie and you get the very strong sense that they just sort of guerrilla style shot this, which is the camera's at quite a bit of distance. And I'm wondering if they just told Robert Pattinson and Benny Softy to just like run through this mall as if they're running from the cops. 
and they just didn't tell anybody because people are looking at them like they're fucking crazy. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what you see sometimes when you watch this guy's vlog, which is he's walking down some crowded street in Japan or India, wherever he is, and, and everybody's looking at him like, look at that fucking white dude with the camera. But he's just kind of doing his thing. And um, I admit, it triggers something of my self-consciousness or not wanting to draw attention to myself, or, uh, uh, drawing in people's judgment. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of got to do what you want to do. And, uh, you know, I think you have to respect people's privacy, right? Um, you don't want to just be shoving a camera in people's face where they don't want to be filmed. But at the end of the day, there is a certain public conceit that we are in a public space and you may get caught on camera. I'm not, you know, you don't want to film people without their permission necessarily. But, you know, I don't know. It's something I, that I might want to do. So I think I will be doing that. And alongside that, I think I'll... Uh, probably continue recording these entries. Uh, I think you can probably expect the, um, you know, the quality to be a little bit diminished. Uh, it may not sound as good as it normally does, but uh, you know, I've committed to the process. We just got to make do with what we have, and uh, you know, I'll try to do what I can to make sure that I can continue to post these uh, entries while I'm in Taiwan. So. Uh, if that's something you can continue to look forward to, that's great. And, uh, you know, otherwise, I guess I'm just not really convinced that I could take a three and a half month break and, and come back to it reliably. So I think just keep the practice up and uh, who knows, maybe they won't be as long. Maybe they'll be shorter. Maybe I'll have to do them while I'm walking to class or I, I don't know what it'll look like, but um, I'll continue to uh, create and disseminate something. So. yeah I mean outside of that there's really nothing else kind of I mean literally the only other thing going on in my life when I think about it is reading I'm reading uh, Lord of the Rings I just finished uh, The Two Towers the second book last night and uh, started reading The Return of the King today and uh, I have to admit it's just okay I was actually telling my neighbor uh, we, you know the weather's been super shitty and again, I'm sorry if I'm a broken record. I, I don't, I, my one, all the days bleed into each other. So I have no idea when this actually happened. And, and maybe I talked about this in, in the last entry. But I've been getting a lot of FaceTime with my neighbor. We've had some, uh, the weather's been shitty enough. Um, this has been rain and wind. And I'm sort of in my place the other day. And my neighbor texts me and says, Hey, I just want to give you a heads up. I'll be using the, I'll be using a saw in the backyard to take down these trees that fell. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And um, I literally sort of step outside my door and I see that these two trees have fallen right outside my window. I mean, really right outside the window that I'm facing. And I always kind of keep the, um, the the shades drawn just because there's other houses in the, and I don't want them looking into my place and, you know, maybe it goes back to my self-consciousness or whatever. But I said, when did this happen? And he's like, oh, like two or three days ago. And I thought, well, that shows you how out of touch I am. There's literally two trees that have sort of fallen right outside my window I didn't even know about. But um, I've been helping him kind of saw them down and and sort of break the wood up. And uh, and yesterday he asked me to help him move some. He has these sort of planting beds and he was moving them around or whatever. So, but we were talking about what? What were we talking about? Oh, I think, we're, yeah, we're just sort of, as we're sort of doing this kind of um, remedial labor, we're just sort of small talking. Like, what are you watching? What are you reading? That sort of shit. And I was just saying, it's kind of a hard move uh, with something like Lord of the Rings, sorry. Which is, it's always hard to read a book where the movies have already been made and they're also very famous and you've seen all of them. It's very, it can be disappointing sometimes to read a book and really you're just kind of picturing the movie. And actually a good sign of a good book that's been turned into a movie is even though you've seen the movie and you read it, it's written in such a way or the story is, is significantly different enough that actually you find most of the time you've kind of, you're still kind of creating your own world in your mind of the action that's taking place. And actually it's kind of surprising because I feel like unless I just haven't, I mean, I, I haven't seen those movies in a long time, but unless I'm forgetting a lot, I feel like there's an awful lot in Lord of the Rings that is just not in the movies at all, which seems insane for if like three movies that are like four hours each. I think the extended versions of all of them are like four hours. It's like, 
it just seems a little bit wild that how could these books have so much that's not in the in the movies? But it seems like there's an awful lot. But at the same time, there's plenty, especially in the first book. Um, most of the first book is in the movies. I feel like a lot of Two Towers, I feel like there was a lot of shit that was just not in the movies. But, you know, I'm just kind of picturing Ian McKellen and Elijah Woods and, like, you know, all the scenes, you know, from the movie or whatever. Um, actually, the only other book that I've seen the movie a million times, and yet the book is something completely different, is The Exorcist. Um, there's a couple moments where you're reading and you go, oh, that reminds, oh yeah, that's like that scene in the movie. But the book is also uh, significantly its own thing and also very terrifying. I mean, I remember like, um, I don't know, it's probably been the last year or two. I could probably, I, I keep, like like movies, I keep track of every movie that I see in this spreadsheet. I do the same thing with books that I'm reading. So I know it's been in the last couple of years that I reread The Exorcist. But I remember like starting to read it like kind of late at night and it was so scary and look I've seen the movie a million times and I've read the book before but I mean rereading the book I was actually so scared I stayed up all night to read it I was like I would rather stay up all night and finish this book with the lights on than like go to bed and I think I even tried I think I was like halfway through it it's a pretty quick read, but I think being like halfway through it and turning the lights off and said, fuck that. I'm not going to bed. I'm just going to stay up. Well, what are you going to do? Uh, well, I'll just keep fucking reading that book. It was more tolerable to be scared with the lights on than to go to bed. Now that, what is that? And I'm a grown ass man. So what does that say about me? Uh, but yeah, so yeah, I was, I don't know. What, what did that have to do with the neighbor? Maybe I was just telling the neighbor, oh yeah, I'm reading Lord of the Rings. It's okay. But I admit I'm thinking about the movie a lot of times. And I will say, um, you know, the Lord of the Rings has such a huge following that it sounds like sac it sounds sacrilegious to say it, but I, I don't know that it's great literature. Um, like it's an insane accomplishment for somebody who was just like a teacher their whole life. And obviously he created something that has like been one of the most formative creative things in maybe the history of Western culture. But like when you read it, you think, oh, I should have read this as a kid. Like if I if I read this as a kid, this would have been much more impactful. But I think if you just have like grown up and you've read a lot of great literature, it just doesn't strike me as, you know, like for some reason I was thinking of like Brothers Karamazov recently. Like when you read that or War and Peace or something like that, like you realize you're in the hands of somebody who's otherworldly in their ability to sort of like um, – you know, they're, they're basically uh, making a novel at the highest form. There is something inescapably derivative about Lord of the Rings, which is clearly the author is drawing on, you know, I think he was a professor of like Ang Anglo-Saxon languages or literature at some prestigious college in, in England somewhere. But clearly this person is drawing on everything they've come into contact with. And so there there does seem to be this kind of like derivative quality to it. But I think I also suggested as much at the end of another entry, which maybe we didn't have time to get into. And yet, even though I'm in the presence of it, and I know this isn't the best, excuse me, the best novel that I've ever read, it's still exactly the type of creative thing that I would want to make. So I was sort of thinking about this in terms of the Softy Brothers, which is when I watch, you know, whether it's Good Time or Uncut Gems or even the show The Curse, and I realize there's more creative contributors to The Curse than the films, but like when I watched that the Softy Brothers work, I find it pretty, it's kind of beyond reproach. You know, it may not be your thing, but it is when I'm watching it, I go, there's really nothing to complain about. It's well written. It's incredibly well acted. It's beautifully shot. The music is great. It's a completely unique and original story. It's just, it's just kind of beyond reproach. And yet I was simultaneously thinking yesterday as I was rewatching these, which is, what will history have to say about these movies? Like, they are technically perfect. And, you know, especially when you consider, God, these Saudi brothers keep putting it up. You know, there's no doubt that, you know, they are the real fucking deal. And yet you think it's very, you know, we, we really live in a time where it's going to be impossible for somebody like the Saudi brothers to make the kind of culture-shaping impact that's going to cement their place in history. Like, it's insane to think that even a band like Led Zeppelin is kind of fading into obscurity, or maybe even the Rolling Stones, the, the Rolling Stones more so. You know, I, I don't get me wrong. I think new generations will always discover this stuff, but it's like, 
Like, for example, I watched a movie, and I know we talked about it, and I'm forgetting the name because I need to summon it. It's with Andy Griffith and uh, A Face in the Crowd. I think I talked about this movie. Uh, it's an old black and white film, and it's very, very good. And it's about this guy who's like a country singer, but he happens to be in prison. And this woman from a radio station who's just like looking for stories, kind of like, the, you know, some older version of This American Life or whatever, is just trying to get stories and, and, and we'll play them on the radio. And she stumbles on this Andy Griffith's character who's this kind of uh, drunken ne'er-do-well who's been locked up for being drunk in public or whatever. And he happens to sing this song for her and it does gangbusters on the radio. So they seek him out. And basically it's this like rags to riches story. But Andy Griffith is this complete degenerate, like it's basically like a prototypical like Trump type character where he holds his entire audience in contempt. He totally realizes that he can manipulate people and all sorts of stuff. And he sort of rises to the top of fame. And ultimately he has this sort of downfall or whatever. Or whatever. But when you watch that movie, you think this is incredibly written, incredibly well acted. It's timeless. And this should be a classic film. And maybe for some people it is. But I think most people are probably never going to hear about or watch this movie. But it's insane. To, and, and in a way, that's what the movie is talking about. Like this guy has this huge rise to fame and he's, you know, the, you know, young women love him and he just has all the power in the world. And then it just disappears overnight. And it's interesting that, that the movie itself is kind of an example of that, which is, wow, this is a great film. It was probably written by somebody who was, you know, a superstar in Hollywood, and Andy Griffith went on to have huge celebrity. And meanwhile, you could be listening to this and thinking, who the fuck are those people, right? Um, and also things are, especially films, are intrinsically dated and sort of obsolete by virtue of how they're captured. You know, A Face in the Crowd is an old black and white movie, and most people are just not going to, you know, it doesn't endure for that reason alone. Um, you know, I mean, you think about someone like Steven Spielberg, who's one, or Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Do the, Is the next generation of people looking at Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese, you know, uh, as like need to watch filmmakers? I'm not entirely convinced. Or someone like Francis Ford Coppola. You know, it's like it doesn't matter really what you accomplish, you'll fade into obscurity. And, uh, you know, I have to believe, even though I'm sort of sitting here and I see the Safi brothers as like the, the subject of my creative envy at the moment, you know, time will sort of wash that away. And why did I bring that up? Oh, the, this, of course, I go back to film and, film and stuff to really talk about literature, but it's interesting that you have these perfect filmmakers who sort of disappear and who knows? Time will tell. But the Lord of the Rings endures. Now you read it, and it's not perfect, you know? But the thing is, it's, it is a world unto itself. It's, it's a greater accomplishment, you know? It's a better accomplishment than the perfect film or the perfect novel. It's actually something deeper. It foregoes perfection in terms of, like, novelistic perfection, to create an entire world. I mean, most of the time you're reading Lord of the Rings, you have no idea what's going on because the characters are literally talking about shit that doesn't happen in the book. They're referencing history and people and events that happen outside the plot. And they talk about them uh, as if you're just supposed to know what's going on. And that's a fucking crazy thing to do in a book when you think about that. Like, in a way, we talk about Quentin Tarantino. One of the great things about Quentin Tarantino is when you watch his movies, most of the time, most of the time, people are not talking about the plot. Or I should say, in the best moments of Quentin Tarantino movies, people are not talking about the plot. One of the best scenes in Quentin Tarantino's output, one of the best scenes in, in film history, is when John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson's character in the beginning are going to do the first hit. Uh, and they're just talking about, you know, Amsterdam that, you know, what are, you know, what is McDonald's, oh, what does McDonald's call their hamburgers in Amsterdam or some shit like that, right? And they, they're talking about Amsterdam, they're talking about this, they're talking about foot massages and all that sort of shit. And they're just talking around the plot. You know, most movies, especially like crime movies like that, it's like, hey, you're this guy and I'm this guy and we're going here to do this and, you know, it's something else entirely. And so it's just interesting that Lord of the Rings kind of does that. There's these, you know, 
long passages that are just like poems about shit that you don't know what the fuck they're some historical thing that happened long ago they're referencing places like it's interesting that the books kind of come with a map because even when i open the map i have no idea how to fucking read it and most of the things that are on the map are not even fucking mentioned in the book you know what i mean so it's just very clear that tolkien had created this whole world in history and was writing from that um you know, a lot of even filmmakers or novelists, they sort of try to do that type of world-building thing where, but it feels kind of hollow. It's like it has the veneer or the guise of being a full world, meaning it would be very, very easy to write a fantasy novel where you kind of as needed, oh, I need to put in a kind of reference to some obscure thing that happened there and to write about it in such a way that it suggests that there's something there but I think in, in, there's like a psychological way in which we know that that stuff is not real. It's just kind of performative, you know? It's like when you watch old movies and they do that kind of, uh, I forget what it's called. Um, it's actually, it, David Fincher actually, was it David Fincher? I think it was David Fincher who actually used to do this, where you would do the type of backdrop design and painting that made it look like you're in a much bigger scene than you are. It's like when you're watching The Wizard of Oz or something and you see Dorothy and her companions, you know, uh, you know, skipping down the yellow brick road, you know that the stage, the sound stage that they're on ends and what looks like the yellow brick road going off in the distance is a painting, you know? Like, we know that to be the case. I think we there's that type of psychological impact on these types of, you know, I haven't read Dune. I've heard that Dune is very good. Um, but is it Tolkien? It can't be. You know, it's an entire world into itself. But does it have that intrinsic feeling of like, a world that stretches even beyond the vision of the story that's being told. And so it's like you have these moments in Lord of the Rings, you know, people are speaking Elvish and uh, people are referencing like historical and mythological events that happened in other eras of Middle Earth. And you're like, this is the real fucking deal, you know? So I tell myself after finishing Lord of the Rings, I want to go on to read things like this because I've read The Hobbit, you know, read Lord of the Rings. And, you know, the next step, I think, for people who want to graduate through their Tolkien universe is to read The Cimmerillion. And then actually, I think his, uh, there's a whole new series, or, you know, new to me, but it's like a multi-volume series. I think it's just called The History of Middle-Earth, which was sort of compiled and created by Tolkien's son or something like that. But um, anyway, it's easy to say that. You know, I'm the type of person who kind of commits themselves to these projects and you know, at the end of the day, when I sit and read Lord of the Rings, I'm not, you know, you know, it's, it's not a page turner for me. It's like, sometimes I have to muscle through a chapter. Um, there's been a couple of moments where I kind of get really swept up into the story, but really it's Gollum. I think Gollum is the greatest character in the whole story and probably one of the greatest characters in, 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 in literary history, but it's just so, you know, it's just so, yeah, that's just a, such a compelling character to me. Maybe I talked about this actually in another entry, but Gollum is, because my brother was very much in the Lord of the Rings growing up, and I sort of understood, even before seeing the movies, like this, the, the sort of gravity of Gollum's character, just from my brother uh, describing it to me. And also, they did make an animated version of, of The Hobbit that was sort of big in my childhood, and I never owned it, never really watched it in full, but I do remember catching it on television one time and seeing the scene where Bilbo Baggins has the encounter with Gollum. And that just like seared into my brain. And then years later, when I was like 17 and I had moved out for the first time, I had bought like on vinyl record, I had bought the audio, you know, a narration, an audio book of The Hobbit that was on vinyl. And I remember listening to that scene and just just knowing that that was, it, it, there was just something kind of otherworldly kind of transcendent about that moment. It's just such a important and profound and, uh, I don't know, psychologically, yeah, it's just such an impressive scene and such an impressive character. It's just like you kind of know you're in the presence of greatness. And, um, um, and I think it's true of the movies as well. I mean, Gollum is really this the the sort of most memorable standout thing of that. And uh, so it's just interesting that um, Gollum has had, uh, yeah, I don't know, has been treated so well and consistently well by every sort of rendition of Lord of the Rings. Anyway, I'm babbling and I know we're out of time here. And so 
I admit the last 10 minutes or so, I'm just sort of word vomiting to get myself over the finish line here. But we made it. And that's what we're here for. So I'll continue to twiddle my thumbs as we approach our time in Taiwan. And um, yeah, I hope you're doing well. I hope it's not as rainy and windy where you are. But I appreciate you turning up and uh, hearing what I have to say today. So thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. And ciao for now.